Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. As Christmas was creeping up on us, we went to the Tabernacle in Notting Hill to record an episode of the news meeting in partnership with Intelligence Squared. It was live and I was joined by Kat Nealon, who's our political editor, Tortoise, by Jess Winch, who's our news editor, and Robert Peston, who, if I remember rightly, breezed in on the back of one of those two lead days, both Boris Johnson in front of the COVID inquiry and the Rwanda policy blowing up in Parliament. It was a night where we talked about the news stories of 2023, trying to identify which story, if there were just one bulletin, just one front page, would lead the news. But then Robert was kind enough to stay on to talk about his book, Bust? Saving the Economy, Democracy and Our Sanity. And so in this bonus episode of the news meeting, you can hear that conversation. There's a link to the end of year episode in the description below. But for now, I'll leave you with Robert. I was asking him about the rise of AI, why politicians need to get a grip of the economy and his plan, his prescription for fixing it all. Robert Peston, ITV's political editor and host of a show I think called Peston, joins us to talk about Bust. Saving the economy, democracy, and our sanity. And Robert, can I do this? Most of the time when you talk about people's books, you start at the beginning, you go through the middle, and then you get to the end. I wanted to go straight to the end because you set out this list of suggestions framed as questions, and some of them are really radically different from the way in which our politics, our economy, our health system, our school system work. So... Let, let, can we can we can we go with start with each of those? Let's mm. start with the political system. Mm. You talk about perhaps thinking about proportional representation, restructuring of the House of Lords. You hint at maybe time for a written constitution. Mm-hmm. So you've lived and worked among British politics for a fair old while now. Do you think it's time for fundamental political reform, and do you think it'll ever happen? I think I do. I think that's what that says. Um, look, among the many things that aren't working, um, which is uh, why the book is called Bust, um, is the political system. Um, and uh, we're not going to address, fix the things to do with our economy. 
uh, actually the things, the social things that are dividing us at the moment, unless we have elected leaders that we have confidence in. And you know, one of the things uh, that is absolutely striking and very depressing is the rate at which trust in our politicians has fallen and fallen. It's also not just the politicians. Um, it, one of the things I, I desperately try and adjust for in everything I sort of you know, write about or uh, broadcast about is to um, sort of adjust for what you might call old git syndrome. Um, and, and which is the phenomenon that the older you get, the more you think things, people and things were better in the past. Because um, I've been following whether it's the way the economy runs or politics runs or business runs for you know, 35 years now. Um, and so I desperately tr you know, try to check myself. When I say, well, our leaders were better in the old days or the official, you know, I, I do go back and spend quite a lot of time just to try to prove to myself that that was the case. And I am absolutely, I'm afraid, persuaded that the quality of the people that we trust to make really important decisions on our behalf has fallen. Right? Um, and there's a whole variety of reasons for that. Do, do, but do, do if, but if the quality has dropped, this is not a time for half measure. So I better run through the things that we yeah. talk about in the book very briefly. And um, most of them, uh, you know, will upset a vast number of people. So I think that the numbers of people in the upper chamber should be significantly shrunk to, I say, 250. Um, and that they should be paid a hell of a lot more. Uh, and, the, and, and the reason for that is not because I think they're sort of chronically underpaid by any normal standard. It is just that if you are a relatively bright, successful person, I would rather that you didn't go and work for Google or you didn't go and work in an investment bank, uh, but that you at least gave politics a chance. And since Thatcher, with this sort of, sort of um, massive emphasis that has been put on uh, success being measured in how much you earn, um, you know, we now have a culture where simply public, you know, simply the idea of public service um, uh, isn't enough to attract people anymore. And anyway, if it was for quite a lot of these people, you know, the, you know, it's very difficult to get in. So we need better people, in my view, fewer of them. And I do think, you know, I'm afraid to say, and not everybody agrees with me, that you've got to pay them more. Secondly, I think we should have a, uh, we, we should, you should be elected by proportional representation, serious proportional representation. And uh, the, uh, the reason I say that is because uh, actually first past the post has not resulted in anything that looks like rational, decisive government for many, many years now. Why, when, why, would, PR make it more, why would PR make it more decisive? Okay. Simply because uh, there are two reasons why one would want a system of proportional representation. One is because, I, is because all the evidence shows that broadly the vast majority of people um, are not the kind of people who shout really loudly uh, in, a, in a sort of culture wars sense on you know, the service formerly known as Twitter. Um, but 
uh, are broadly sort of sensible reason. You know, they're not vast numbers of people aren't very interested in politics at all. But when they are interested, they're sort of broadly people who are sort of moderate in the centre. And so broadly, you would expect, even if you know power changes in the way that it normally does, you know, in a democratic system, the shock to the system of a change of government. The, the notion that big policies would be swept away is much less likely to happen. And something else is important, which is we are living in an era where um, we have more extremists, right? And actually, I would rather, weirdly, you may think I'm, this is wrong, but I would rather that the people who vote on the far right and the far left cannot argue that democracy is failing them, which they can say at the moment, because they will never get anybody elected. Where, you know, I, don't think, I don't think if we had PR in this country, any of those people would form a government. But actually, I think democracy is stronger when people feel that their vote counts for Rob, something, which it doesn't for vast numbers of people at the moment. I mean, it's absurd that the Greens, you know, have, you know, a single... MP, it's mad. Robert, right? can I can um, I ask you about can I ask you about a few of the specific yeah. ones? Because some of these ideas here people just will not have come across before, except uh -huh. in your book. So here's one that I really thought was interesting. Yeah. Partly because it's music to the ears of people on the right, as well as maybe people who worry about the NHS. This is under the heading of health. For a maximum of five years, oh, yeah. while backlogs are cleared. Should everyone going private for a non-urgent treatment receive a tax credit for the cost of the treatment or the premium paid on health insurance? And this would be an automatic sunset clause, i.e. what you try to do is reduce demand in the NHS by incentivizing people financially to go private. And for five years, you create a whole new provision through the private sector and the healthcare system. People will be surprised that you think that. I knew you were going to pick that because people, when I've talked about this, this is the, this is the policy people mostly hate. Um, so I knew you were going to pick that. And look, there is, there is, a, there is a slight problem with this policy, um, uh, which is, particularly if you're a sort of conventional public spending sort of thinker, is there is there's potentially quite a big deadweight cost here because it's quite hard not to give uh, the tax break to people who are going to use private health care anyway but i mean you will all know right that there are people in agony at the moment with non-urgent operations whether it's a hip replacement or something of that sort um who simply can't get treated by the health service and it is a scandal and some of these people are actually using their life savings to get private treatment i just don't think that's fair and um, so i do think we've just got to think of this is broadly me saying we've just got to think of more imaginative ways to use the resources that we've got now there's an associated policy that, uh, that, that in 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 the list which says that if we train you to be a doctor and then you bugger off and either work abroad or work exclusively in the private sector, you should pay back that portion of the subsidy that we provided to you over and above the typical cost 
of a typical degree because it's way more expensive to train a doctor than it is to, you know, to, to do a normal degree. So I do think broadly, if we are essentially providing an enormous subsidy to doctors, they should basically make, you know, they should either make a choice to work in the NHS um, or if they don't want to, they should pay back the subsidy. All right. There's a lot of good, interesting intergenerational stuff in this, one of which being a letter from the Prime Minister every year in January to young people. And the leader of the opposition. And the leader of the opposition saying what they can expect from the state in their lifetimes. But this is a good one. On the 20th anniversary of the vote to leave the European Union in June 2036, when those born in 2016 have reached adulthood, shouldn't there be a referendum on whether to apply to rejoin the EU? Why wait so long? <laughs> so the reason, so I've, I've written this book with a, a rather brilliant 31-year-old who I've worked with for years on my show called Kish and Coria. And um, uh, this was the one area where I compromised with him because I originally said, I don't know, 2030 or something like that. He said, oh, no, it's far too soon. Uh, but so, 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 I mean, basically what I think is... Sorry, Kish thought it was too soon, 2030, or you thought it was too soon? No, 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 I wanted to do 2030, but he thought, he thought it was too soon. Um, he's, he's, he's uh, in some, I mean, he's in some ways a bit more cautious than I am. I mean, my basic view is you've got to let enough time elapse so that those who, so that we can make a sort of rational judgment about whether this thing has worked or not, right? And I think a proper, you know, I think a sort of more or less a generation has to, you know, we have to live through a generation to really make that. Hold on, Robert, sorry, 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 for a second. Do you really think that? Because if you think on the evidence now that it's not working, why would you wait another 13 years? Well, look, I said, because I'll tell you why. Because I said night after night on ITV, uh, you know, unlike my equivalents at the BBC, that this thing was going to make us poorer. And the British people voted for it. And I respect democracy. And, you know, uh, it has made us poorer. I think it will continue to make us poorer. I don't think it's fixing other problems either. It doesn't look to me as though, uh, you know, the House of Commons looks like a more authoritative, more rational body than it was uh, before, which, is the which was the sort of constitutionalist argument for... Um, you know, for it. I don't think we look stronger in the world. I think we look more isolated and rather less influential in the world. But in the end, people voted for it. And as a Democrat, I take the view, uh, we should all do our best to make it work. Uh, 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 but if it hasn't worked after a certain period of time, I don't think there's anything sort of appalling about, you know, letting people decide again. But I just think, I just think with something as really fundamental as this, I do take the view, you've got to give it a bit of time. <clears throat> Can I ask you a question about fairness and change? Yeah. So one of your suggestions here is that whenever a person faces a compulsory change of career because of technological or profound economic shifts, yeah. shouldn't they qualify for a universal basic stipend for the months they would need to acquire important new skills? Well, that's so, the point I just made about AI. That's, that, so, is, that is the policy. But the question I've got for you is this. As you say, you not only have you written about politics, you've studied economics. Mm. If I was the Chancellor of the Exchequer reading that, I'd be like, Robert, give me a break. That is a blank check. How do I know how much that's going to cost? How can I possibly manage future finances if every person who gets put out of a job says, well, it's going to take me a year, maybe two years, possibly five, to retrain? I mean, so the answer is you have to put in place rules about, you know, first of all, you have to, you have to make sure that there is, you know, a genuine, uh, you know, there are genuine facilities 
whether it's in the public sector or the private sector, so people can re-educate, retrain. Um, and, you know, so, so you know, um, it's it, it, it really important, as I say, that, 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 that we create institutions that can provide people with the knowledge and skills that they will need in this new um, economy. But then you have to set a time limit. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not, this is not a sort of soft, you know, uh, you know, every, you know, every, you can live on whatever you like for as many years as it takes. You, you, you know, you have to uh, essentially set rules, but it's not impossible. None of this stuff is impossible, and it's and it's not. So here's here's an interesting thing, okay, which um, uh, is sort of amazing that it's only happening now, but it is sort of relevant to this kind of uh, this kind of argument. So, um, the government in the last uh, budget announced some quite uh, significant welfare reforms. And some of them, I think, you know, many people would say may put some uh, people who've got disabilities into a fair amount of difficulty. And I'm not going to talk about uh, that aspect of it. But there is, but what, what they are doing is they are spending really quite a lot of additional money on, we'll see whether they deliver it, but they are spending quite a lot of additional mental health support and health support for people who can't work at the moment on the basis that if they go back into the workforce, um, that will lead to faster growth of the economy and increased tax revenues in five years' time. Now that sounds like reasonably common sense, and it's, per it's perfectly decent economics. But weirdly, up until the last budget, the Treasury did not ever make that, that dynamic calculation. Right? They never said it was worth spending money on uh, health support of various sorts on the basis that expanding the workforce would make everybody richer. Um, and that's mad, right? We had this very narrow uh, calculation, which was simply on the basis of if we stop paying benefits to these people, uh, what's that going to save us versus how much are we spending on them? But that's only half the story. Um, and, and so <laughs> if, you, if you have a policy of the sort that I'm talking about, and then you look at the dynamic effects in terms of, of growth, then you can make a perfectly serious argument that these things pay for themselves over time. And the truth is, when we are not growing at all as an economy, again, you know, this is not a moment for being timid and using outdated fiscal rules. One final question. You said, as you came in, you spent a fair few hours watching Boris Johnson today. What did you think of him at the time, and has that changed? No. <laughs> um, I used to work for him. I was, uh, for a very brief, I had, I've done all sorts of weird jobs in my life, and very briefly, I went off and tried to set up a dot-com thing in the last sort of digital revolution phase. It was about two, 99, 2000. And on the side, because basically in my, the dot-com thing was a terrible mistake. In my soul, I've always been a hack. And so on the side, I did a, a variety of different hack things. And I worked uh, on The Spectator for a bit, uh, writing a column. It was my 
I was going to say, I was going to use a, the F word, but he was my editor. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was the most annoying editor <laughs> I have literally ever had. Because you'd have a conversation at the beginning of the week, and I'd say, I want to write this column. And then literally, about half an hour before deadline, he'd ring up and say, I've got this amazing idea! <laughs> you know, and, you know, I'd just have to tell him to take his amazing idea somewhere else. Um, um, but so when he became uh, prime minister, I was, it was just a weird and slightly shocking moment. Uh, you know, and anybody who uh, watched, the, you know, Britain, if you, watch, if you watch back today's performance by Boris Johnson, uh, at the COVID inquiry, Britain, over the, the, the years of COVID, were the equivalent of me as a spectator columnist. Because um, he just kept, during COVID, changing his mind. And that came out in spades today. That, you know, one day, you know, COVID wasn't a problem. Then we had to lock down. And then literally days after locking down, he suddenly decided, oh, I'm not sure whether we should have locked down because do we actually have evidence that this is... You know, and, you know, one day... Uh, you know, it's the most threatening thing in the world. And then he, you know, says, you know, let the bodies pile up or whatever the ghastly phrase was. Um, so <sighs> if you talk to Tories uh, who backed him to be their leader, basically what they say is uh, we, th we knew... He was, uh, you know, even though you're all um, friends, and this is all obviously off the record, mm. there's quite a lot of you, so I probably shouldn't say precisely what's on my mind. But, um, the, but what they basically say is, we, th we, we, we knew this was a sort of devil's bargain, but it turned out even worse than we thought. Um, I mean, everybody knew who Boris Johnson was some people love the sort of roguish nature and they still love the roguish nature um but if what you are looking for is you know somebody who um is able to clearly distinguish between uh you know fact and fiction if you're looking for somebody who is uh, prepared to really immerse himself in complex issues, complex documents. Here's a thing he said today. So Sage, you, you presumably all know this mm. is the Scientific Advisory Committee, particularly important during COVID. Do you know how many Sage uh, documents Boris Johnson said he might have read in his time as Prime Minister? Have a guess. Two. What, no, what he said is, I might have read one or two. No. You know, I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of astonishing. Um, so, um, but we shouldn't really be surprised because it was, it was there for all to see, right? Um, so, I mean, I think all of us knew. Got, 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 got what we thought we were getting, didn't we? Do you think those ideas get traction from Labour in the next 12 months? Or any ideas, any well-articulated I mean, different ideas. I mean, so, 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 somebody, 
actually a very nice woman called Aisha Hazarika described the end of the book as the manifesto, which I quite like. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, it, it's because there's a ton of stuff, some of it batshit, some of it, you know, worth talking about, it's, which, which is all about fixing these massive problems we have, you know, uh, you know, fractured society, politics that doesn't work, an economy that doesn't work. So, you know, it, the book, that's what the book's about, fixing. And it's, you know, I am broadly optimistic. I think we can... Uh, uh, we can fix this thing, but we've got to be bold. And there's a lo whole list of stuff at the end, which are essentially bold suggestions. I don't think that, um, well, actually in the order of priorities of what Keir Starmer has to do, I don't think actually that the number one priority is to be bold with all of us. You know, I don't think he actually does have to, in order to win, I don't think he has to stand up and, and, and come up with a whole range of really uh, uh, earth-shattering policies. Because at the moment, the um, Tories are doing you know, his job for him by essentially you know, looking totally dysfunctional. But there is incredibly important work that he has to do. And I think he gets it. He's hired quite a lot more people, um, which is um, if they're going to win, as I said, looks, believe the polls, you can say the Tory party that they are, then he has to be properly ready to govern. And what that means is, even if he's not going to tell us his big ideas, he sure as hell has to have them once he's prime minister. And he has to have worked them out in a really detailed way so that he can then say to Whitehall, this is the agenda, drive it through. Which is what, to be clear, Blair and Brown did in 97. I mean, I was very close to that whole process of the creation of New Labour. And they did the most astonishing amount of technical legal work in the run-up to the general election, which allowed them on day two to say, we're giving control of interest rates to the Bank of England, which was the bigger, biggest change to the structure of the economy for a generation. And the civil service were not able to say, oh, it's all a bit too difficult. I'm not sure whether we'll be, because Labour had done the work and just said, look, here, this is how you do it. You know, uh, we've spoken to the people at the Bank of England, these, these are the technical obstacles you've got to overcome. And they drove it through. And it, 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 that's important for two reasons. One is because the natural instinct of civil servants to just bring you problems as a government is slightly squashed because you as a government are just saying to them, you know, get on with this big thing I want to do. And they have to do it. And that's the nature of the contract. And secondly, to the wider world, whether it's the media or all of us, you can see a government driving forward, which again, if this is a government that is true to what Sama says, which is it wants to be here for 10 years, it has to show momentum right from the start. So, you know, if you're a Labour supporter, what you ought to be hoping for is not that they're going to come up with some amazing, whizzy, sensationalist things, uh, you know, which they spell out in public over the next few months, but that they have them ready to do <laughs> after the election. So one of the things I talk about in the book, for example, is we've got to get over our terror of an identity card uh, in this country. And what I mean by that in the current climate is a digital identity card because for a whole variety of related reasons one is because if we want to sort out we've got this is a time of scarce resources if we want to tar target welfare support better then actually we've got to know much more we want to uh, target help for businesses much better. we've got to know much more in real time about the economic circumstances of both individuals 
and businesses, which some kind of digital identity card would give you. There's a one of the things that I also believe is an absolute tragedy, a scandal at the moment, is that under the current policy, we have significant tens and tens of thousands of people applying for asylum in this country who have no status here, um, and they're not allowed. You know, they're, they're neither on their way to becoming uh, residents, uh, nor yet are they. Can we? get rid of them, um, and they're not allowed to make any kind of a contribution, they're not allowed to work. But, you know, if you had a digital identity card and you couldn't work unless you could show your digital identity card, then, you know, essentially the Home Office could say to asylum seekers, well, we haven't sorted your case after three months, and therefore we will give you the ability to work, we'll give you, one of the, we'll give you a temporary identity card, you can work for six months. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just think the notion that these people should be deprived of the ability to make a contribution is an appalling one. But, and, so I do think, you know, the, the British way, and you, you, you'll be aware of this, the British way is to somehow say identity cards are somehow, you know, I mean, some of the language around this stuff in this country has been appalling. You know, it's associated with a sort of Nazi approach to, you know, running a country. It's all, you know, very continental and, you know, it's, a, it's somehow trampling on our freedoms. I think we, I, I think, you know, we, you know liberty is about a lot, you know, is about a lot more than, you know, whether you have a, some kind of a badge that proves you're uh, a citizen or, or, or a resident. So that, that's, what, that's sort of one of the things that if I were being bold uh, coming into government, I would want to see worked up. Um, Robert Peston, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Peston. Tortoise. 